the struggles they are going through raise very important questions about where is the government, what was the level of preparedness, why did India end up in this situation after all they had heard about India making the vaccine for the world and about the Indian success story. This is Real Fiction. I'm Laurie Messing-McGarry. You are listening to this program on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Today we're talking about the COVID crisis in India. Real Fiction is a place where we discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. India is one of the most diverse and captivating countries in the world. Even an ardent follower of news and information would struggle to sort through the real and fiction published by Indian and global media outlets. We do know that Indian scientists were at the forefront of the COVID vaccine development. In fact, the world's largest pharmaceutical companies are in India. What are we to make of this paradox? As the world watches the virus surge in India, questions about Prime Minister Narendra Modi's handling of the crisis have come into focus. But something else seems to be taking shape. It is the emerging voice of the worldwide Indian diaspora in the face of this pandemic, and particularly how data scientists and social scientists are effectively speaking out. I'll be back in a moment with Dr. Shareen Joshi of Georgetown University. My guest today is Dr. Shireen Joshi. She is Associate Professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Joshi has a strong interest in studying the effectiveness of poverty alleviation programs and policies. She is also an Associate Editor of the Journal of South Asian Development. Professor Joshi has also served as a consultant for the World Bank, the United Nations, and the Government of India. Here to help us navigate some challenging questions about the COVID crisis in India and the media landscape is Shireen Joshi. Professor Joshi, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you. Very nice to be here today. Professor Joshi, as I prepared for our conversation, the reported statistics in India indicate approximately 20 million COVID cases with 2.6 million just in the past week. And I know you have been closely monitoring events in India. In fact, I read a tweet that you posted. It had something something like this to say. It said, you may want to look away, but we must watch. Um, And it is difficult to watch this um, crisis unfold. But what is your impression of how the numbers of COVID cases are being tracked in India and their accuracy? And what do you see as some of the core challenges? Well, thank you so much for your question and for inviting me. You're absolutely right. The numbers are horrific. Um, I'm watching from afar. I'm watching in despair and sadness, trying to struggle my way through the numbers of this pandemic, and it's heartbreaking. Um, The numbers are big, and even at their biggest, they're an undercount. 
the real caseload, the real death rate is likely many times higher than what is being formally reported by the government of India. Informal estimates suggest somewhere between four and 10 times higher. Mm. Now, the reasons for the undercount are complicated. Firstly, even in the best of times, India doesn't count deaths well. Only about 80% of deaths are recorded Only about 22% of these are assigned a formal cause. We scholars rely on population surveys. Those have become increasingly unreliable and they don't have cause of death modules. So the vulnerabilities of the Indian population, the morbidities and the risk factors for COVID-19 are just not well understood even going into this pandemic. Secondly, you know, the medical system is overwhelmed. So even that's obviously a very big factor. They can't even keep up with knowing the number of frontline workers who are infected. So that's a second problem. Third problem, testing is not widespread. So if a death occurs in a patient with comorbidities, even within the medical system where it's recorded, it may not count as a COVID death. So With these three factors, you know, set aside politics and which obviously plays a role also. And you can see the scale of the undercounting is pretty severe. I confess I did read that there was potential for undercount, but I did not consider that the scale might be that significant. Um, Now, as I read COVID reports from India, much is focused, at least what the counts that I have read, focused on India's capital in Delhi. Now, as you consider the full picture of India, how is the country handling relief efforts in cities versus rural areas? Well, the impression I'm getting from my field teams and contacts in smaller towns and even villages of India the narrative is very much that people are on their own. The healthcare system in these places is woefully inadequate at dealing with these kinds of numbers. It's been inadequate for a long time. India only spends 1% of its GDP on health. I think it's gone up beyond 1% recently, but still it's lower than neighboring Bangladesh. So in a pandemic, stretched resources are stretched even thinner. I think the narrative I have coming from these places is that too many people are dying at home without even being tested. I don't believe I mentioned, but you grew up in India. Yes. And, is, and this is, are these part of your personal and uh, professional networks that are helping to inform you of what's happening in the real time? Yes, I grew up in India. Um, I have friends, family scattered throughout the country. I also do field work in India and have professional networks that extend throughout the country. At normal times, I would say that I rely less on these networks and more on the rather sophisticated architectures of data collection in India. You know, India is actually very good at gathering data, population surveys, health surveys, the census of India are big. They are historically quite credible in terms of scientific expertise that goes into creating them and interpreting them. But of late, 
these are proving to be unreliable and inadequate at understanding what is going on with issues like morbidity, non-communicable disease, and cause of death, which are exactly the issues that are relevant in the time of a pandemic. So to answer your question, I am now in a situation where instead of relying on that data architecture, I'm very much relying on personal narratives. And that's a shift that's been very difficult for me to make as a scholar and as a member of the diaspora. When I think about what you have focused on professionally and how this COVID crisis is unfolding in such a dramatic fashion, do you expect that some of your research techniques and focus may shift in the coming years as a result of what you're witnessing now? Well, as a scholar, I work with data. The challenges I have been facing recently are that data is increasingly controlled by the government of India. Scientists, data scientists, and social scientists have been rather sidelined in evidence-based policy making in recent years. Hmm. You know, you can see this in the buildup to the pandemic. The COVID-19 task force of India stopped meeting after January. The, you know, genetics consortium that was monitoring the virus wrote reports that went unignored, that went ignored. Um, Evidence-based policy making has gone out of vogue But the scientists and the academics like myself have forged ahead with our work. You know, in last week, several hundred Indian scientists signed an open letter to the prime minister arguing that the excessive levels of control over data had undermined the country's ability to even study the spread of the infection or respond to the growing caseloads all over the country. And they urged the government to kind of come out and release data and allow them to do their work. That has played out in a lot of different ways, um, even before last week. You know, population surveys of India are routinely delaying the release of findings. Um, The protocols keep changing. There's irregularity in administering the surveys. So, We scientists and academics who study India have been frustrated for a while. I think going forward, my hope is that these issues will come to light and we will get some support to kind of fix them and we'll be able to do our work better in the days ahead. But that's a fight we're fighting right now. Yes. And I'd like to hover uh, there for a moment with respect to government messaging and government leadership at a time of this crisis. There are reports of what we might call conspiracy theories about the COVID virus and potential cures, we might say, spreading around social media sites. And it's a kind of a delicate topic, but um, I've seen reports that has been suggested that the prime minister's office and the sort of Hindu nationalist point of view may be encouraging beliefs that some alternative medicine is as effective or even more effective than modern medicine, which would be the vaccine. Is this something that is complicating vaccination and good information about how to remain healthy? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, the current government's anti-science posture is quite glaring, even on the international stage. Um, there has, I can give you many examples of this. You know, um, in 2019, the Indian Science Congress held its annual conference. And usually you have Nobel Prize laureates, you know, really renowned Indian scientists. I mean, Indian scientists have been at the forefront of the global response to COVID-19. They've been developing vaccinations, low-cost ventilators, building models and finding really creative solutions. For example, pooled testing. That's a very Indian innovation, um, you know, that came out during this pandemic. So Indian scientists typically come to this conference to present their work. The work is typically world-class. In 2019, the Indian Science Congress conference somehow featured university administrators who argued for the use of ancient scripture as scientific evidence. Mm. They renounced the work of Isaac Newton. They even proposed renaming gravitational waves to Narendra Modi waves. <laughs> I, I mean, this is real, right? So given the anti-science climate in the country preceding this pandemic, it shouldn't surprise us that you have religious ideologues touting everything ranging from yoga to Ayurvedic medicine as a cure for COVID-19, it should not come as a surprise that they're skeptical of vaccines. In some sense, we've seen this happen in the United States as well, that there are pockets of belief that are anti-science. And during the pandemic, at that moment, these really surface in a very big way. It's happened here, and it's definitely happening in India as well. This leads me to uh, a question that I've often wondered when it comes to a country like India. If there is an agency or a source of information, a media source, um, the high number of official languages complicate information consistency. Now, I've read that there are 16 or 22 official languages in India. Can you shed a little light about how information is conveyed across the, the span of, of languages that are spoken across the country? Yes, absolutely. India is diverse. It's diverse in so many different ways. Language is um, something you've highlighted here. Yes, beyond the official languages, there are hundreds of regional dialects. And really, Laurie, there are hundreds of ways of life in India, mm. right? There are many Indias and it's an amazing place. It's one of the most demographically, economically, socially, and politically diverse and vibrant places in the world. So you're right. That diversity is complicated when it comes to information dissemination. Indians consume media from many different sources in many different languages. Television and WhatsApp messaging has become dominant of late. Print media is less important just because it requires literacy, right? Whereas television and WhatsApp messaging can be, can go 
visual and viral very fast. Um, so these are there are typically highly localized markets of information in India, and in the past, historically, you know, India has done a phenomenal job of curbing illnesses like polio, leprosy, HIV. India mm. gained half a year of life expectancy every year after independence through strong, you know, public health campaigns. So it can be done. I think you know, the pluralism of India has not held it back from getting people to change behaviors and mindsets in the interests of their health in the past. I think what we really need to do is go back to those success stories and really harness what we learned from them, which is it takes a, it takes strong leadership, you know, with 80% of the country supporting the ruling party in some form or another, you know, it might mm -hmm. be that they haven't won elections everywhere, but research from Pew research polling has showed us that Prime Minister Modi is personally popular. It may have changed in the pandemic, but if he stood up and messaged on vaccines, on masks, on social distancing, and on the science of the pandemic, it would get translated into every language. It would go viral in every form of um, social media, and people would listen. I think India's a dense country. Information travels fast. It goes between English, Hindi, and regional languages quickly hmm. when the message is popular and it needs to be heard. This is amazing insight. And as I think about what you just said, I think about uh, Indians in the diaspora and how they view uh, the prime minister, the government, and what kind of information they're seeking. And it's probably an impossible question to ask of you, but do you have a sense of what kind of information is being monitored on WhatsApp and Twitter or in in print media. Is it uh, safety within a city? Is it does it ha might have to do with critical supply availability? I think what's happening in the diaspora is a real moment of reckoning. I think there were large pockets of the Indian diaspora in the United States that supported Prime Minister Modi. They were quite mesmerized by the images of standing up for Hinduism and Indian culture on the international stage, the narratives about India's growing clout in the world resonated with them. Mm -hmm. They, There were large pockets of the diaspora that supported Narendra Modi. What has happened now in the pandemic is the narratives from friends and family about the level of struggle in facing this pandemic and how alone people are in whether it's searching for oxygen all of us in the diaspora refresh our phones every 30 seconds because we're scared of the pleas the cries of people looking for oxygen looking for blood plasma looking for remdesivir and the struggles they are going through raise very important questions about where is the government, what was the level of preparedness, why did India end up in this situation after 
all they had heard about India making the vaccine for the world and about the Indian success story. I think they are confused. I think they are searching for answers. I don't know where they are getting information and how they are reconciling the kind of international messaging from Mr. Modi to the lived reality of friends and family back home. I think that's their struggle. Yes, and to think about that in light of new severe travel restrictions that have been put into place in and out of India only compounds the isolation. I think the diaspora are going through a second trauma. We already went through this when the United States was going through its COVID crisis. We felt that as people living in the United States, we were no longer welcome in many parts of the world, whether the restrictions were official or not. Mm. We felt that we were not wanted in other parts of the world because of the COVID crisis here. Now, just as all of us over here are getting vaccinated, we are facing this crisis again because we're shut out of our homeland, we're shut out of our friends and family support systems, and we are again isolated. So it's coming as this kind of second blow. We were already stretched, we were already isolated, and now here it comes again. So it's traumatic, it's difficult, but I do think that the restrictions are being perceived as warranted. I read an interview with um, Kamala Harris's uncle in New Delhi, who understood the travel restriction and looks forward to visiting his niece when mm-hmm. it's done. But we get it, right? We get that infection does travel. You know, when we think about a catastrophe, uh, a human problem, devastation like this, we sort of look for patterns of hope or, or something that might something good that might emerge from from this. And the United States does have plans to send an aid package to India. I think a hundred million dollar aid package to India. Do you see an opportunity for? Fresh cooperation, expanded cooperation between the two governments? I do, Laurie. I see some glimmers of hope here in the long run, right? So as you just pointed out, the collective voice of the Indian diaspora, which is quite a bit more empowered than it used to be, has really won some victories here, whether it's the aid package or the push for the removal of patents on the vaccine, right? That is a significant mm. voice in of the diaspora that's pushing the Biden administration. I think that um, that voice is going to go str- get stronger. I think there's another voice that's going to get stronger in this crisis, which is the voice of scientists. You know, people like me have faced a lot of hurdles in working in India. You know, there's been a real sidelining of international collaborations amongst Indian academics. You know, the Ministry of External Affairs earlier this year tried to restrict even virtual gatherings online discussions about India. They had a list of topics that were off limits. Those were scrapped because of a certain uproar amongst academics, 
But I think professional engagement, scientific collaboration, conversation over issues of mutual importance like health, right, or or pandemic security, if you will, need to be rebuilt because there's been many years where these activities have been restricted. I think the diaspora of India is well positioned to partner with Indian scientists. I would love to see technicians in Silicon Valley collaborate with their counterparts in Bangalore, build data systems, build new electronic platforms to connect people identify pockets of distress, identify pockets of vulnerability, make aid money, make philanthropy more transparent, make it work better for the Indian people. I think Indian talent in the diaspora and Indian talent at home partnering together can do great things for for the Indian people, right? So I, Mm -hmm. I look at that. I think there's a lot of discussion about foreign aid, but The value of these diasporic networks, the value of those Indian scientists developing vaccines, developing ventilators, developing, you know, testing technologies, the value of those resources is many times higher. And if we could harness it better, which I think we will, so much is possible, not just for India, but also the United States and the world. There is no question that we will all be relying upon scientists, data scientists, to reflect on this in the coming years. And I certainly hope that that you're right, that this leads to a greater collaboration. I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Professor Shireen Joshi. She is a professor at Georgetown University in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. And just a final question, Professor. Everyone's watching India, and we will continue to watch what's unfolding. Do you have any observations about best practices when consuming news from India? I think the best practices of consuming news from India are largely the same as the best practices that we use over here or anywhere. I think we have to recognize India is a very large country. The scale of the country is astounding. You know, mm-hmm. 1.4 billion people, right? That's that's a staggering um, number. So I think to recognize that India's big, India's diverse, India's plural, and any news coming out of India may not apply to everybody. So you have to look at who's writing it, with what platform, and to which audience. Who are they speaking to? And what I tend to do is I like to hear all voices, you know, whether it's pro-government, anti-government, science, anti-science. I like to kind of read broadly and then try to un, you know to situate each voice each piece of information on where it is in the mosaic so collectively that tells you something each piece of information on its own is by definition partial uh, professor joshi i can't thank you enough for joining real fiction today thank you thank you for having me
You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Join me each week on Wednesdays at noon. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your preferred podcast platform. Thanks for listening.